Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. I'm going to preach this morning and then we're going to respond with communion and taking, participating at the Lord's table together this morning. I just want to give you a couple of updates. First of all, thank you for everyone who participated with us last week in the, uh, in the International Sunday. We had an amazing morning and evening together, and uh, we set a goal of $20,000 over and above our regular tithes and offerings just to sow into mission work around the world, and I just want to let you know that we brought in $21,998.25. So thank you for partnering with us on that. That's amazing. And um, we just also want to just acknowledge in the house this morning just uh, people that, again, are just experiencing uh, some, some grief in the journey of life. We're praying for uh, Laverne Gilbert on the passing of her uh, brother last week. And uh, also we're praying for Mark Denhode on the passing of his cousin Mike, a uh, young man, young dad, and just praying for the comfort of the Holy Spirit to be upon them. Also want to just take a, a moment this morning to honor one of our own here in this house, been part of this house for a long time, and I just wanted to take a moment because um, these are good moments just to celebrate. I want to honor Donner, uh, Dr. Chuchu Nuebu Bay, who was honored this past week by the West Lincoln Memorial Hospital Foundation as the recipient of the Family Philanthropist of the Year. And uh, go ahead, stand, Dr. Chuchu. We honor you. I know him. And we just, yeah, just declare the blessing of the Lord onto you and your family. That's just amazing and just the fruit of your faithful service in this community. And so we just bless you for that. Lisa and I just uh, took a couple of days, uh, just got back uh, last night from being in uh, Montreal, Quebec with our friends, Hannah and Joelle Domaine. Everybody remember Hannah and Joelle? And uh, they're leading their conference there uh, this year, the Generation Unite Conference. And God is moving by his spirit in the nation of Canada and Quebec is uh, just getting rocked by the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's just amazing to see. We'll have them back in 2024, and uh, we'll get to hear from them again, and they bring greetings to you today. Uh, but it was just so sweet to be with them. We're going to get into the Word of God this morning. And uh, this isn't my text, but, but I just want to declare this truth to you from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Everybody say great light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness isn't just, you know, a physical reality, but the darkness that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about is a, a darkness that scripture describes it as darkness that you can feel. Hoshek is the Hebrew word. It's, it's a darkness that you can feel. It's an atmosphere. You can, you can feel that, that realm of darkness. And, and people walking in darkness, the Bible says, have seen a great light. And what that means is that God works in the dark. 
God's not stumbling around in the shadows, but the Bible says that even darkness is as light to him. God's not mystified in the darkness. He's working in the midst of it. God's stirring. God is awakening hunger for righteousness. Darkness that you can feel is oppressive. How many know what I'm talking about? There's an oppression to that darkness. Years ago, um, I may have told this story to you before, but it's the thought that came to mind years ago um, when Lisa and I moved to Welland, Ontario. I was youth pastor there for a few years with uh, Pastor Peter Cuke at Faith Tabernacle. And uh, when we first got there, you know, I just wanted to kind of go out and explore the town and, and uh, all of it. And, um, <laughs> and so, so I, I found the, the old Welland Canal was something that they had converted more into kind of a tourist area and, and uh, you know, kind of these nice pathways alongside uh, this old canal. And so the canal is, you know, obviously this kind of orchestrated by the, the hands of man, this channel where they put, uh, you know, kind of cement banks down toward the water. And, you know, me being me, not necessarily um, something that you might do, but I thought to myself, I bet you I could touch that water. <laughs> no real reason. I just thought maybe, I, you know, maybe I could. Anyone else do stuff like that? I was just like, I bet you I, I, bet you I could. I bet I could touch that. I don't know. I'd, I'd love to say it's because I was younger, but anyways. So I get down, you know, and, and I'm kind of just edging down. No, no reason, just just wanted to say I did it, you know, and, and just kind of put, put my toe on the water, and uh, I slipped. And I, and I fell into the canal. And so then I was like, okay, well, I need to get out of this canal in a park where people are walking by eating ice cream, just like. It was before smartphones or it would have been just like, what's this idiot doing? You know, like one of those accounts, morons doing things. I'm the, anyway. So I'm trying to get out of the canal, fully clothed and soaking wet. And, and the concrete that, you know, was the embankment to the canal uh, you know, when the water level would be higher, it would just kind of form like, you know, uh, like some green on it, you know. And so there was traction on that when it was dry, but not when you're soaking wet. And so I'm like, I'm trying to get out. And it's like, all of a sudden, I'm like, like, is the headline going to be local youth pastor dies in freak <laughs> act of stupidity, you know. And I'd somehow managed to, you know, managed to just kind of get some grip and just slowly couldn't make fast movements and get out and then and then walk back to my car <laughs> soaked like head to toe what is oppression <laughs> it's falling in the water with your clothes on you don't know how heavy your clothes are till they're soaking wet and then you have these you're weighed down and your f- steps are sloshing and you're, you're just, you're covered in an atmosphere that you weren't prepared to walk in. That's oppression. Being, being weighed down by an atmosphere you're not meant to walk in. Walking in darkness is heavy. And the answer to walking in darkness is to see a great light. Now in your Bible, my Bible, the Bible that we all read. The Old Testament ends, the book of Malachi. The New Testament begins with the book of Matthew. The gap between 
what happens at the end of the prophecies of Malachi and the angel coming and saying that John the Baptist was going to be born. That gap is 400 years. It's amazing how we can read backwards and, and just kind of skip along through things and there are gaps in the story that are a long time. And it was a time of great darkness. It's a, the intertestamental period. The prophetic voice was silent for about 400 years. The Jewish people who were waiting for their Messiah to come, they, uh, they live as subjects of various kingdoms. So they, they, they live under the subjugation of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Egyptians and then the Syrians and then there's the Maccabean revolt and then it's followed by the Roman era. And just constantly living in darkness, living uh, under the silence of the heavens until God sends an angel and speaks to John the Baptist's parents, speaks to his dad, Zachariah, who was a priest. He was a spiritual insider and speaks to him about a son that was going to be born and told him the name of that son is going to be John and that he was to live under a Nazarite vow. And so we know that there's something special that God wants to do with John the Baptist. And so then John the Baptist, we see him emerge. Then, you know, the next time we see him is still while he's a fetus. You know, when Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, comes and says hello to her cousin Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist leaps inside. His spirit was awake even before he was walking the planet. And so then we see him later emerge as a revivalist and a prophetic voice in the wilderness. And he was an unusual character because, uh, you know, he... He hunted camels. I don't know anybody who goes on like a hunt for camels. But, he, I mean, he got the skins off of them, so he had to kill them. So he went on a camel hunt. So he wasn't much of a hunter, I guess. I would imagine hunting camels is pretty easy. And he wore their skins. He ate locusts, you know, just ate grasshoppers and wild honey. And he preached in the wilderness... This is what always gets me about John the Baptist is that he preached in the wilderness. He didn't book the arena. He didn't go to the synagogue. He didn't put up posters and say, come to a special talk. But he preached in a wilderness and people were drawn. That's the anointing. He preached under such an anointing that people left where they were and their regular activity. And it's not as though people in Bible times didn't have anything to do. People had to put down their work and put down their, their daily assignment and they had to walk out because they were being drawn by the spirit toward the prophetic voice. See, because God works in the dark. The 400 years of silence, the 400 years of darkness, the glimmer of light caught the heart of those who were hungry and who were stirred towards the Lord. Like, like this can wait, work can wait, synagogue can wait. Let's, let's get out and hear what this one has to say. And so they go out into a wilderness and there's John preaching. Imagine, imagine just, you know, kind of feeling drawn. Somehow, the Bible doesn't tell us how it starts, but it just starts. Someone had to have been walking through the wilderness and hearing a guy preach. I don't know if you've thought about it. Like, how did it start? And they sat and they listened. 
And their hearts started to burn, and they're like, I'm going to go tell somebody. And they go get friends, and when they get there, there's already a couple hundred people in there. I guess someone else heard this guy preaching in the tumbleweeds. And then, before you know it, there's this massive revival. This, this drawing of people to hear the word of God prophetically spoken under the anointing because there had been great darkness and in that time of the absence of light, a craving for the light emerged. See, God works in the dark. He, he, he works. People began to crave a word from God. And so his message was, he preached a message of repentance. Sometimes the problem that happens when we get into, um, into the good things of, of church life, Bible study, uh, godly conversation, it's not unique to the church. It's not unique to the, your walk with God. But what can happen in any realm is that you start to use words that over time they start to lose the impact of their meaning because we get familiar and it stops hitting us like it should. Right? It, 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 it's it's kind of like when I was little, sick meant like vomit and, you know, you weren't feeling well. And now sick means something's really good. Like, like if I was, if I showed you my new bicycle as a kid and you said, that's sick, I would have cried. I would have been like, I like my bicycle. You're sick. That's because I was a kid. But now when you say sick, it means something totally different. What can happen is words can start to, to just not land the way they should. So what does it mean that John the Baptist preached repentance? It, we think of repentance as saying sorry. And it's included, but that's not it. We, we think of repentance as, as um, just, just maybe not even thinking really deeply. It's just, it's just kind of a church way of saying adjust. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance literally is change your mind. It literally means change the way that you think. And if you change the way that you think, then you're going to change the way that you act. It means change the way that you think and act about God and your relationship to him. That, that, that there's this message that he comes and it, it, you know, 400 years of silence, people are desperate for the light and you might think that the light is, is God loves you very much and he just wants you to know how special you are to him. But the message was repent, change. That God is so other than you, you can't come at him the way that you are. You, you need to change. I wonder if that's still true. That's a rhetorical thought. I know that's still true. We, we have to adjust. And into that phraseology right there, we have to adjust. Into that space right there comes all kinds of argument of, oh, so you're saying we have to earn salvation. No, I'm not saying that. Oh, you're saying that we have to be clean before we can come to God. No, I'm not saying that. So what are you saying? I'm saying repent. Well, I don't know what that means. I know, I know. We have to, we have to excavate. 
that repent means I have to change how I think about God. God doesn't fit into my little box and scenario, but I need to actually get ready. And this is the amazing thing. This massive revival that John the Baptist had, he would tell people to change and something in their heart. And this is the thing that we've got to grasp is that repentance is a heart issue. It isn't just, oh, it looks like all the cool people are doing this. I'm going to do it too. It's not just thinking about it, although it's changing how I think. But the, the fuel for that desire to change doesn't come mentally. It comes spiritually. That something in me says, I need to change. I think our struggle often in our walk with God is, I'm trying to do all the changing, but I haven't actually been converted at a heart level yet. Because I'm trying and then I run out of gas because why am I trying so hard when that looks like fun and I still want to do that and I still feel like this. And, and so repentance just feels like, nah. churchy word, cry a bit, move on. But that's not Bible. Bible is actually change. And so people come to hear John the Baptist and they're like, well, what do we do? And they weren't ready for what he was going to say next. Well, if you really mean it, oh, we mean it, John the Baptist. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. Why else would we be listening to you? You've got grasshopper legs in your teeth. <laughs> Might want to run a comb through your hair. We're here because of the anointing. We're, we're feeling it. There's, we really mean it. Okay. Come here. Where? Here. Standing in the Jordan River. Okay. Close your eyes. Okay. And he starts baptizing people. Pushing them down in the water, then bringing them back out. This is a picture. It's a prophetic picture. It's not, we don't start here. If you start here, it just is weird. What are we getting baptized for? But if you start at the heart, it's like, I get it. This is like, this is like I'm changing. And so I'm not... I'm not oppressed by this atmosphere, but now I'm going to walk in the sloshing garments of the atmosphere of heaven and being ready. This is the amazing thing about John the Baptist is that his ministry was a way-making ministry. It was to get people ready. As amazing as it was, you know, if you've ever been to a great concert, you know it's a really good concert when the band you're excited to see, you're wondering if you're still excited after the first band has played because you're like, these guys are amazing. John the Baptist is just the opening act. He's, he's not what they came for. They're like, this isn't it. But people began to wonder. Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Written, humanly speaking, by the Apostle John. Speaking of John the Baptist, two different Johns, okay? The Apostle John's writing about John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verse 19. says, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely I am not the Christ. Just pause there. Imagine, he's so anointed and so powerful in God 
that people actually thought he might be the Messiah. They thought he might be the Christ. That's pretty crazy because Jesus said the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Like people should be wondering about you. No, that's not what Jesus meant. He, just, he meant something else. Or he meant it. That the anointing could so get onto your life that people could actually have an encounter with Jesus through you. And so John doesn't fail to confess who he's not. Part of knowing who you are is knowing who you're not. And not letting someone else's expectation drive the rest of your life. A lot of people miss destiny by trying to fulfill other people's wishes. I know who I am and I know who I'm not. I have an anointing. I've got a powerful assignment, but I know that there's one greater coming. Verse 21, they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. (laughs) Well, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist had a prophetic understanding of where he fit in the redemptive timeline of God. Where do you and I fit in the redemptive timeline of God? You should write that down, maybe pray about that. Where do we fit? in the redemptive timeline of God. Not someone other than you. If you love Jesus, you have a part to play. We've been taking all this time looking at the Antioch church, not just celebrating an individual, an anointed person, a a strong leader, but a church moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. Where does the church fit in the redemptive? Where does this church fit in the redemptive timeline of God? What role does this church play in the purpose of God in the world today? My Bible says that we're the bride of Christ. We're called to be the generation that sees the glory of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. John the Baptist baptized people. God wants to baptize the planet in the glory of God. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth. There's a great light rising over the nations, and his name is Jesus. Verse 24, now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, I want to zero in here. This is where I want us to take our attention for the next few moments. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Be in the context of this story while I'm unpacking it to you. Everyone's wondering if John the Baptist is the Messiah. There's such conviction. People are responding. They're leaving their work. They're leaving their homes. They're coming out into a wilderness. He's preaching with such authority from the Spirit after 400 years of silence. And as he ministers the Word of God under the power of the anointing, people are saying, what do we need to do? He says, get baptized. They're like, you got to be the Messiah. He's like, I'm not. I'm not. This is water. He's coming with fire. There's someone standing among you that you don't know. There's someone that you actually need to get a revelation. And while John's saying it, he knew he needed the revelation too. I'm doing my part, but 
The timing of Jesus mystifies me. Does that resonate with anybody else? The timing of Jesus. When's he going to show up and do the stuff that only he can do? I don't know. So what do we do in the meantime? We do like John the Baptist and we just fulfill our assignment. What's our assignment? We're the bride of Christ. What's the assignment of the bride of Christ? To be conformed to the image of Christ. We've got to be more and more like him. What's the assignment of the bride of Christ? To be spotless. We can look at all the, the end time prophecy and how there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and pestilences. We can tick all the boxes and go, all that's happening. I wonder if the next thing on the list keeps mystifying us because what it's supposed to be is a church that's spotless. And a spotless church is like, oh, that sounds like work. Sounds like repentance. Sounds like changing the way we think and changing the way we live. It'd just be cool if Jesus just showed up because there's an awful lot of earthquakes and famines and pestilence. And it's pretty dark out there. Huh. And that the great light began to shine when John the Baptist preached. And the great light in our generation is when the glory of the Lord comes on the church. If we need to understand our assignment. So John just keeps preaching what he's preaching until revelation comes. Revelation. Not head first. Heart first. Naturally speaking, he knew Jesus. They were cousins. <laughs> so it wasn't as though John the Baptist is just sitting on it until he's like, mm, it's about time. Now I'm going to tell everybody. He didn't know. He just knew his assignment and knew that God would show him in God's timing. And the Bible says, we just read it in verse 29, the next day. Next day after what? The next day after John faces an inquisition of religious people trying to figure out if he's the Messiah or not. He's like, I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. Okay, well, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. He lived and went to heaven. They had this weird theology that he was going to come back and do another ministry. And so they, they, they thought of like reincarnation kind of stuff. He's like, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I know who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in a wilderness, preparing the way for the one greater after me. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. And the next day, after answering their questions, revelation hits John the Baptist. And he says, look, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb. Look to the Lamb of God. This language is prophetic. What does that mean? It's language that has deep meaning in God's heart. When I say, behold the Lamb of God, it's more than just, you know, a phrase. I say that, and God, by his spirit, begins to burn something in our hearts. How do I see the Lamb? How do I recognize Jesus? It's not by figuring it out, and it's not just by mental agreement. You need a revelation from the Spirit of who Jesus is. So do I. Without it, it's just trying to believe hard. But people walking in darkness recognize light because you haven't seen it. And so it's not just another idea. See, the, the Pharisees who are doing their investigation of John the Baptist, all of their system of religion, it didn't add any light into the darkness. In fact, it just 
added to the darkness. There's no freedom in all of their rules and all of it, you know, seeing as we can't hear from God, what if we just make up a bunch of extra rules so we can just have contests of who's more holy than the next guy? Oh, I see that you cut your sideburns, Kevin. (laughs) I guess you don't love God like I do. I see that you went for a walk on a Sabbath. (laughs) Nice try. I've never even smelled bacon in my life, let alone gone to a men's breakfast (laughs) with 180 guys yesterday. Good luck, ladies, trying to beat the men. Okay, anyways. (laughs) Sorry, it's not a contest, but we're winning. So... (laughs) They got into rules and making up stuff to try get close to God and it wasn't working and it didn't make it any lighter. It was still dark. After the inquisition, John responds and says, look, hits him in the spirit. Look, it's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at the lamb of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Look at the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me define sin for you. There's another word that just lands with a thud. Sin. What's sin? Your opinion of sin. That's, that's your opinion. This is my opinion. That's your conviction. Everyone's got their choose their own adventure Bible. Just like, yes, I don't feel the same conviction as you. But sin isn't subjective in that regard at all, actually. Because sin is, is, there's several definitions that help us. Sin is defined, if you want to write it down, it's defined as missing the mark. It's one of the Bible definitions of missing the mark. Like as if you were uh, trying to hit a bullseye with a bow and arrow and you, you go wide of the bullseye or you miss the hay bale altogether. It's just shooting wide of the intended target. That's That's sin. Our best efforts. Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. We miss the mark, even though we're trying. Sin is also transgression. That's a transgression is an act that goes against God's law. It's an offense. It's where we cross the lines in rebellion to please ourselves. It's not missing the mark. We're not even trying. We're just kind of like, eh, I know God says to do that. And then maybe sometimes we get some theological background so that we can do whatever we want. We call it grace, or we have some sloppy mercy, and we're just like, I don't even want to aim at that. I want to aim over here. Oh, I'm looking at the camera. Hey there. I want to. I want to just shoot at my own thing, but can I still get a trophy for being an archer? And it's like, no, no, no. You, you, you didn't even try. You transgressed. You crossed the lines. Iniquity is another definition of sin. What's iniquity? That's a big one. That's a whole other teaching. But that's, that's inner sin. That, that's depravity and perversity on the inside. It's the inner world that's warped. An inner inclination toward rebellion. It's distinct from temptation. Temptation is common to all of us. Even Jesus was tempted. That's not sin. To, to have a pull in a direction that we know I shouldn't go. But I'm talking about the indulgence on the inside. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said that if you hate somebody, it's like murder. If you lust after somebody, it's, it's like adultery. 
He's, he's saying if you, if you indulge up here in sinful animation of thought, that what's happening is you're corrupting on the, this is what the Pharisees, the religious people were guilty of. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. Iniquity. A corrupt inner world. Doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. I can't see iniquity. You can't see iniquity. We look on the outside, God looks on the heart. Lawlessness is another definition of sin. Living as if there is no divine standard. Like, I don't even think there's a hay bale. I don't even care. I'm not aiming at that. And I don't even feel like I'm transgressing. Iniquity, shminiquity. I don't care about any of it. Because none of it applies to me. Because, because like, like, if I close my eyes, there's nobody in this room. If I close my eyes, there's no God. Lawlessness. Spiritual anarchy. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. And all of these things are sin. These are things that offend the heart of God, the standard of His perfection and His holiness, that He actually can't look on that. Well, then we're in a predicament because Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. We've all been lawless. We've all missed the mark. We've all transgressed. We've all had corrosion on the inside, letting a thought take off until there's lust or greed or jealousy or hatred that's festered in there. We've all sinned. Any one of those categories, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Our failed best efforts, our rebellious ignorance to God's law and righteousness, our corrupted thoughts of lust and greed and hatred, our lawlessness and self-appointed standards or lack thereof, and we just live as a standard unto ourselves, and we fall short. But look to the Lamb. He wasn't content to leave us there. But look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. What a statement that he takes away sin. How does this lamb take away sin? Well, it's prophetic language. It's it's pointing backwards and it's pointing forwards when John the Baptist said it. Points back to the Passover and this symbolic act that God gave to his chosen people, the Israelites, when they were in captivity in Egypt. And he said to them, your deliverance is going to come when you take a year-old male lamb and you slaughter it and apply its blood to the doorpost, that when the death angel passes over, he'll pass over you when he sees the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. In other words, when you sin, you have to die. Because the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. So, so we're dead. That's the, that's the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. We're dead in our transgressions and sin. And God wasn't content to leave us like that. The religion of the Pharisees didn't work. But the repentance that John the Baptist preached was adjust and start looking for light in the darkness. 
look at the Lamb. Look at the Lamb of God that it points to the cross. Behold the Lamb. It takes away the sin of the whole world. But Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, without blemish, without sin, fully God, fully man, comes and lives where we live, tempted the way that we're tempted, yet remains without sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. What sin? My sin. Your sin. My lawlessness. My iniquity. My transgression. My best efforts going wide of the target. He came and He became that. So on the cross, we see the demonstration of God's holiness and God's love. His holiness in that God poured out His wrath on your sin and mine. The violence of the cross is the holiness of God displayed against sin, transgression, waywardness, lawlessness, iniquity. It's the judgment that I deserve. It's the judgment that you deserve. Because we've all sinned. But Jesus absorbed the wrath that we could not. He became sin. Then we see it as the love of God because Jesus willingly laid down his life so that we could be made right before the Father. Jesus mediated. He stood and made intercession for you and for me. Behold the Lamb of God. I'm going to ask for the ushers who are ready to distribute communion. If you would go ahead and distribute that. We're going to sing a song. And I want you to just, as you take those emblems, hold them in your hand. And we're going to look to the Lamb this morning. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device.